Hello, I'm Harry Glorikian, and this is The Harry Glorikian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. It's April, and spring is well underway, even though it's been a pretty cold one so far here in New England. It's the kind of weather that makes you want to pull the covers up over your head in the morning and just sleep in, or maybe just hibernate like a bear until summer is really here. But when you think about it, what is hibernation? Why is it something that bears and squirrels do, but humans don't? Even more interesting, what's going on inside a hibernating animal, physiologically, that allows them to survive all winter without freezing to death and without ingesting any food or water? And what can we learn about that process that might inform human medicine? Those are the big questions being investigated right now by a four-year-old startup in California called Fauna Bio. And my guests today are two of Fauna Bio's three founding scientists, Ashley Zender and Linda Goodman. I asked them to explain how they got interested in hibernation as a possible model for how humans could protect themselves from disease and how progress in comparative genomics over the last few years has made it possible to start to answer that question at the level of gene and protein interactions. We've always looked to the natural world, especially the world of plants, for insights into biochemistry that could inspire new drugs. But what's exciting to me about Fauna Bio is that they're shining a light on a previously neglected area of animal behavior that could now yield new insights for treating everything from neurodegenerative diseases to cancer. Here's my conversation with Ashley and Linda. Ashley, Linda, welcome to the show. Thanks, Harry. We're excited to be here today. It's going to be fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I mean, well, you guys are someplace sunny and warm, and I'm actually, I shouldn't say that. It's actually sunny right now on the East Coast, so I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to jinx but, yourself. But the temperature is going to drop like to, I think they said 18, so everything will freeze tonight for sure. So it'll, it's, it'll you know, it's one of those days. <laughs> But I want to jump right into this because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Like, I, I, there's so many questions that I have after sort of looking into the company and sort of digging in and, um, you know, but even before we jump into what you're working on, right, I really want to talk about hibernation, maybe because I'm jealous and I'd like to be able to hibernate. Um, I have sleep apnea, so sleep is, is a problem. Um, but... Humans don't hibernate, but there's a ton of other mammalian species that that do. Um, and sometimes I do feel, though, that my teenager hibernates, but that, that's a different issue. So, but what what is interesting to you about hibernation from a physiological point of view? What 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 goes on with metabolism or gene expression during hibernation that's that's not found in humans, but that could be relevant to human health. Yeah, I think this is a great question, Harry, because I think both Linda and I came to fauna from different backgrounds, right? I came from veterinary science, Linda from comparative genomics, we can go into our details later. 
but neither of us really appreciated the amazing physiology of these species, right? They're some of the most extreme mammals on the planet and there are hibernators in literally every group of mammals, right? This is something Linda specializes in, but there are primates in Madagascar that hibernate very similar to the 39 ground squirrels that we tend to work with. So it's this really deeply conserved trait in mammals, including primates. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of highlights for us what our genes can do when they're adapted for extreme environments. And so that's kind of the lens that we take when we look at hybridation. It's how do these species protect their own tissues from being nearly frozen for six, seven months out of the year, um, having to protect their brains, their hearts, all their vital organs. They're not eating, they're not drinking, they're not moving for these really deep bodied hibernators. Um, when you think of a hundred gram animal that's not eating for seven months, how do they survive that, right? And it has to do with metabolic rates that change two to 300 fold over the course of a couple of hours. It has to do with oxygenation changes and protection from oxidative stress and ischemia reperfusion. And so if you look at a tissue by tissue level, you can start to see how these animals are finally adapted to protecting themselves from, from damage. And then we can start to say, well, this is similar damage to what we see in human diseases. Um, and that's why this is such an interesting system because it's so dynamic and because it happens across so many groups of mammals, it really lends itself to this comparative genomics approach that we take to drug discovery. Yeah, because I was wondering sort of like what ways of healing from different sort of traumas and conditions do hibernating animals have that, that humans don't, that we sort of maybe wish we did? Um, it, it's sort of like, you know, almost Marvel or one of those things where you like go to sleep, you wake up, you've totally healed again, which right. kind of be kind of be cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but when did scientists first begin to think about whether having a better understanding of hibernation might help us solve some of these riddles that we have in human health? I mean, it ha surely it, it, it can't be like a new concept. It has no. to go farther back. I mean, what has changed recently to make it more actionable? I mean, is it, you know, omics, costs coming down that are making it easier, computational capabilities that are, you know, making all these come together. I mean, those, what do you guys, If what's it, What's the answer? You guys know the answer better than I do. I'll comment on a little bit on the physiology and I will let Linda talk about the data revolution because that's, that's really uh, what she knows uh, very intimately. So, you know, from a physiology standpoint, these are species and not just hibernators, but a lot of other species that we've been studying, you know, since the early 1900s, 1950s. I mean, these are some of our earliest biological experiments and our earliest understandings of biology were not necessarily uh, done by studying humans. A lot of that was done by studying natural disease models, right? How did we figure out that genes cause cancer? So is a little bit of a tangent, but bear with me. It was not by studying human cancer. It was by studying Rouse sarcoma virus and how that virus picked up bird genes and then turned them on, right? In other, in other individuals. So, but then kind of this almost the same year, 1976, that we figured out that genes cause cancer by studying chickens. 1974, we figured out how to genetically modify mice. And we sort of figured out that like, okay, maybe we don't need to study natural biology anymore. And so we, I feel like we sort of lost a lot of those skills and figured out we had humans and we had model organisms and we were done. Um, and I think now we're kind of in this renaissance where people are realizing that actually there's still a lot of natural biology that we can learn from 
but it's being powered now by this data revolution and the decrease in cost and sequencing and availability of um, omics data like RNA-seq. And then I will pitch that over to Linda because that's really what she knows <laughs> best. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, Ashley's right. And I think just to add on to that, that there was this um, issue in which there were a lot of field biologists out there working with these really fascinating hibernating animals. They knew a lot about what these animals could do, um, you know, the extreme environments they were exposed to that they could overcome, they could protect all of their tissues. And there was that, so there was a group of field biologists who knew all that information. And then on the other side, you have all these genomicists who are studying the genomes of probably humans and mouse and rat, and they weren't really talking to each other for a long time. And, you know, I've been in the genomics field for at least a decade, and not until very recently did I even hear about all these amazing adaptations that these hibernating mammals have. So I think some of it was just a big communication gap. And now that um, the genomics field starting to become a little more aware that all these exciting adaptations are out there that we can learn from, I think that's gonna be huge. And yes, of course, um, it certainly does not hurt that there's been a dramatic drop in sequencing costs. We can now sequence a reference genome for around $10,000. That was unheard of years ago. Um, and so a lot of these species that um, people would previously consider untouchables because they were not model organisms with a pristine reference genome, we can now start to approach these and thoroughly study their biology and genomics in a way that was not possible several years ago. Yeah, I was thinking, I was, you know, I was laughing when you said $10,000, because I remember when we did the genome at Applied Biosystems, and it was not $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it took, I remember Solera, we had an entire floor of sequencers working 24 I mean, it was an amazing site. And now we can do all that, <clears throat> you know, on, on a bench top, top, bench top. A exactly. Yeah, <laughs> on a bench top. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, you know, it's interesting, like, in a way, studying animals to learn more about disease mechanisms, seems like a no brainer. I mean, we share a what about 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees and for those listening, yes, we do. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's people out there that like bristle when I say that. But not what is it? 97.5% of our DNA with rats and mice. Um, that's why we use all these things for sort of safety and effectiveness of drugs meant for humans. But still, I'm not used to drug hunters starting out by looking at animals. You know, why do you think it's taken the drug industry, although I'm I say that very loosely to wake up to that idea. Yeah, I think it's I think it's again this almost reversal of the paradigm that exists today, which is let's take a human disease that we want to make a new drug for. Let's take a mouse and let's try to genetically manipulate that mouse to mimic as closely as possible what we see in the human disease. And those are always imperfect. I mean, I did a cancer biology PhD at Stanford and there's that trope of like, oh, if I had a dollar for every time you curd mouse in a human, right, it wouldn't need to work anymore. And that's that replicated across how many fields, right? They're, they're not good models. And so we're saying like, obviously that doesn't really work for discovery. It's fine for preclinical and safety and you have to use those models, but for pure discovery, that's not where you wanna be, right? Instead, you wanna take the approach of saying, where has nature 
created a path for you? Where has it already solved this problem? And I think there are companies um, like Varian Bio who are doing this in human populations or saying, let's look at humans that have unique physiologies and unique disease adaptations. Mm -hmm. And of course, then you have to find those, you know, niche pockets of human populations. So that's not a, not, not a simple problem either, but the approach is very analogous. We're saying is we can use that rare variant disease discovery approach and just expand that scope of discovery. Look at highly conserved genes, look at how other species are using them to, you know, reverse tau phosphorylation in the brain, to repair their hearts after damage, to reverse insulin dependence, to heal heal their tissues or regenerate stem cells. Um, let's just see how nature did it, right? And just mimic that instead of trying to fix something that we artificially created. So it's literally reversing that paradigm of how we think about animals and drug discovery. But you have to know how to do that. You have to know which models are correct. You have to know how to analyze 415 genomes together in alignment, which is really complicated. Linda knows how to do that. Um, so you have to know how to do it correctly, otherwise you could screw it up very badly. So there's a lot of um, expertise that goes into these analyses and also, again, the data availability, which wasn't there you know, nearly a decade ago. So, so I asked this question out of pure naivete because I'm not sure that I could sort of draw a straight line, but you know, which drugs were have been discovered through research on genetic mechanisms of disease in animals? Is there, are there? You know, I think directly uh, it's a new field, right? So I think, Linda, you and I have uh, you know, looked at some examples of looking at drugs for um, narcolepsy, looking at, you know, do dog genetics and studies looking at muscle disorders in certain species of cattle that have naturally, you know, beefed up muscles and translating those into therapies. I mean, there are examples of looking at animals for things like exenotide, right, came from Gila monster venom, although that's not strictly a genetic program, right? So I think this idea of looking at natural animal models is a source of innovation. It's just that, again, the data wasn't really available until fairly recently, but we know the strategy works by what's been done on things like PCSK9 inhibitors in humans, right? It's a very similar approach to that. It's just expanding that scope of discovery. So, because you guys raised money and you guys are moving this forward sort of, and I, I don't want you to tell me anything that's confidential, but so sure. what was the pitch when you, when you put that in front of everybody? It was really that, look, drug discovery right now has really been hampered by a lack of innovation, right? And we're really stuck in looking at these very kind of currently limited data sources, which is humans. And again, these handful of really imperfect animal models. But we can take what we've learned from working with human genomics and really greatly expand the opportunities for a number of diseases that still don't have good therapies, right? We've had the human genome for really close to 20 years now. We spent a lot of money sequencing it. Um, and still, if you go back and look at the FDA approvals from the last two years, which I kind of did by hand um, a while ago, or more than three quarters of those are not new targets. They're new drugs for a new indication, or new drugs, same drugs, but for a new, a new indication, or they're kind of me too pathway drugs, or they're drugs for which we still don't know the mechanism that some small molecules been around since the 50s. Um, and so like, where is the innovation? Like and the top, top 10 diseases of people still haven't changed. So like where, in, I pulled these two headlines, right? Not too long ago, one from 2003, which is like the era of the genomics revolution, right? And then one from 2019, which was the genomics revolution, question mark, right? They're like we're still sort of waiting right. for it. And so like, what is that missing piece of data that's really gonna allow us to really leverage the power that's in the human genome and to do that, we have to put our own genes 
in an evolutionary context to understand what's important. And that's been that third dimension of genomics that's been missing. So it's really not necessarily about any particular species that we work on, all of which are amazing. It's really about using that data to shine a better light on what's important in our own genome. And so that's a lot of the pitches, like how are we going to use our own genome better and find better treatments? Yep, understood. So you have a third founder, yeah. uh, Katie Grebeck, right? So tell me about yourselves. I mean, did the three of you get interested in comparative genomics and hibernation? How did you come together? How did you decide like, oh, hey, let's do a startup and get this thing going in this area. So tell, tell me the origin story. Lena, do you want to kick off? Sure. I think it all really started, um, Ashley and I initially started batting a few ideas around. We both had this um, understanding that, that drug discovery today did not look outside of human mouse rat very much and we both understood there was this wealth of animal data that's just waiting to be used and no one was doing it and we couldn't really figure out why um and we were having trouble um figuring out exactly which animal we wanted to study and which diseases we wanted to study um, and it just so happened that we lucked out. There was um, another woman in our lab at Stanford, Graybeck, who had the perfect study system um, for what we were thinking about. You know, she had these amazing hibernator animals um, that have uh, exquisite abilities in terms of disease resistance and repair. And once um, she started talking about um, all the amazing uh, phenotypes these animals have, we thought, wow, that would make a great study system um, to make the next human therapeutic. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that both Katie and Linda have human genetics PhDs, right? So I think both of them, um, and Linda can expound on this, but from Katie's perspective, right, she, she went in to do a human genetics PhD trying to understand how genes can be used to improve human health. And she ended up rotating the lab as somebody who studied the 39 ground squirrel and said, you know, this physiology is way more extreme than anything we see in humans, but they're doing it using the same genes. Like, what are those genes doing in these animals that we can adapt for human therapeutics? And so she brought that work with her to Stanford um, and was really one of the preeminent researchers studying the genetics and genomics of these species. Um, my background is I'm a veterinarian. So my clinical training is in exotic species. So as, as a clinician, I treated birds, mammals, reptiles, and saw that they all presented with different kinds of diseases, or in some cases didn't present with diseases like cancer that were super interesting. And then coming to a place like Stanford to do a PhD, it was working with a bunch of human researchers, human focused researchers. They're all, they're all generally human researchers, but you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> a little bit tricky with the nomenclature. Generally, I have my doubts about a few. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We'll see. Maybe there's some chimpanzees doing research somewhere. People studying human diseases, right, from a human lens, who were completely ignorant of the fact that animals often also had these disease traits or in some cases were resistant to them. So there was this huge disconnect there of, of biologists and veterinarians and physiologists who understood all these traits across different species and the people who knew the molecular mechanisms, um, even though a lot of those are shared. And so one of the things I found really interesting just from a cancer perspective 
was that, you know, a lot of our major oncogenes are highly conserved because these are core biological genes that if you screw them up, will give you cancer. Um, but there's an evolutionary pressure to maintain these genes. Um, and so there's a reason why they're conserved because they're really important biologically. Um, and that's true across many other diseases as well. So, you know, from that perspective, I was really interested in this intersection of human and animal health. I'd always wanted to do more genomics myself um, and just never had had the training. Linda had always been interested in veterinary science. And so we kind of immediately started collaborating and saying, look, look, there's a huge opportunity in this, again, third space, third dimension of genomics that people are not looking at. What do we do, you know, trying to start a comparative genomics company, I'm using air quotes here for the podcast listeners, um, is a little bit broad, right? Where do you start? And I think Katie really gave us that start in saying, here's a model. We have a biobank of samples that are proprietary to fauna. We have an expert in this field. We have a model that's good for so many different diseases. Let's prove that the process works here, and then we can expand into multiple disease areas. You know, you got to love people, I think, underestimate that magic that happens when the right people are get together and the spark happens, right? I mean, I'll take that any day. I mean, I love coming up with a plan and then you know, working to the plan. But when it happens, when the right people are in the room and they're all get excited, those are those are the most incredible startups, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so you're starting off with targets in heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, and diabetes. Very different areas, right? Cardiovascular, neurodege- neurogenerative and metabolic. So why start with those areas in particular? So I think for us, it was really, again, showing showing what we can translate from this model. So some of the phenotypes that we see, the traits that we see in the 39 ground squirrel, which is uh, predominantly one of the species we use for our, our work, is that they're exquisitely resistant to ischemia or perfusion injury. So the kind of injury that gets if you have a heart attack and you go and get the heart attack unblocked, you get this rush of warm oxygenated blood back into your heart. That can actually be damaging, and that's a lot of what causes damage after a heart attack. What these animals happen, they do this 25 times over the course of a six to seven month hibernation cycle. And if you look at their hearts in the peak of one of these periods, there is an upregulation of collagen, which is caused of fibrosis. There's an upregulation. There's histologically, there's a little bit of damage. It's less than you and I would have, but there's a little bit there. But if you get to the end of that whole cycle and look at their hearts, they look normal and they do it again next year, right? Um, so you, know, you and I could not survive 25 of these attacks over a six or seven month period, right? <laughs> Just obviously not. So like we call it, let's pick the strongest phenotypes we have in these animals and let's show that we can use the information from that and come up with genes and compounds that are protective and are more standard models of these diseases. And that's what we did really with the, the first round of data that we had is we generated four genetic targets and two compounds that came out of the, the, the heart data that we had from hibernators. And then we tested them in human cardiomyocytes in a dish and said, if we take oxygen and glucose away from these cells, they get really unhappy and die. Um, and we could double survival of human um, heart cells in a dish. And then we said, okay, great, let's actually move this into animals. And so we used AAV or so we used viral vectors to then knock down genes in vivo in hearts of rats who we literally tied off a coronary artery and then let the blood come back in and saw that we could almost fully protect these hearts from damage by you know, knocking down genes that we found in the hibernating data. So it was really closing that loop and saying, where are the strongest traits? Can we show that this works? And then it was really figuring out where are the really large areas of unmet need. And so in terms of metabolism, uh, we ended up connecting with Novo Nordisk, which is a publicly disclosed partnership. They are very focused on obesity, 
We have a model that increases its metabolism 235 fold over an hour. Name another model that can do that, right? Yeah. Ooh, I need that. I, I need that. I, need, I like because I need to need get that. rid of a few pounds right yeah. around here. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so then it's really just figuring out like where are the unmet needs? Who is really interested in these areas we're looking at? And do we have unique data that speaks to those models? And that's really we just try to be guided by the biology um, and saying where do we have unique um, data sets that can answer high unmet needs? Okay. Well, I it all I mean all sounds super exciting. If we can make the translation, you know in the right way and find those targets. But you guys have built up a significant biobank, right? I understand you have a huge database yep. of genomic readout from various hibernating animals. Can you tell us, you know, a little more about the extent of that biobank? How did you collect the data and how unique is that database in the industry? Yeah, Linda, do you want to talk a little bit about the data sources that, that we're currently using at Fauna? Yeah, so maybe you might be the best person to talk about the biobank, and then sure. I could talk about all the other uh, data sources yeah, that we're I'll layering on top of that. Yeah, so we have yeah we have a number of different data sources. The biobank is one of them, and probably you know one of the main ones that we use. So um, Katie, during her PhD, built a, a really unique biobank of very precisely timed tissue samples from 39 ground squirrels across the whole hibernation cycle. Um, and the reason why that timing is so important is because the cycle is so dynamic. If you don't have really precise sample timing you end up with a big kind of smush of data that you can't tease apart. Um, by having really precisely timed data points, you can separate these genes into clusters and know exactly kind of where you are in time. And that timing relates to the physiological in injuries that we study, right? So we know what time points their hearts are protected because those physiological studies have been done. We look at those time points very specifically. Um, so we have that biobank of samples that we in license this founding IP at Fauna. Katie and I literally drove it across the country in a U-Haul because we didn't trust anybody to move it. Um, so that's, that's now in our freezers in Emeryville um, with a cadre of backup batteries to protect it. So that's some of the founding data that we have. And I, that's been really crucial when I look at other companies trying to use data for drug discovery, um, particularly in the early stage, a lot of it is kind of publicly available data or cell lines or, you know, kind of shared data sources. And part of mm -hmm. what is unique about Fauna is we literally have truly novel data sources that we're starting with that are wholly owned that we control and, and we know the quality of those. Um, so that's really the the biobank that we have is and it's 22 different tissues. I mean, it's brain, it's kidney, it's lung, it's heart, it's um, liver, uh, skeletal muscle, right? Pretty much every kind of tissue you would want in, in that founding biobank. But then on top of that, I think what we've done with the other data is super important. Yeah, and so um, we layer on top of that all sorts of publicly available data um, and also data we've been able to source such as human data from the UK Biobank. But I really wanna hit on the point of, of why the um, model species hibernator data is so different. All of the other data that most people work with is trying to compare animals that are healthy to animals that are diseased or people that are healthy to people who have disease. What's really unique about the model species that we're working with is we're trying to figure out why they have these superpowers in terms of disease resistance and repair. So it's kind of the other end of the spectrum um, that, that we're making this comparison between a normal, um, normal hibernator um, during, say, the summer months, and then a hibernator that 
has gene expression patterns that mean that it's resistant to many diseases and it can repair tissues when it gets damaged. So it's actually quite different from the normal types of comparisons that, that others would make. Um, but yes, we and then we integrate publicly available data from sources like Open Targets, Reactome. Um, and one of the other data sets that we work with that's that's valuable is that we go back through literature that is relevant to the disease indications that we're going after. And we have a team of curators that mines these papers that where the biology is relevant and we integrate those transcriptomic studies generally into our database. And that, that really helps with our comparisons. Um, and I can kind of give you an example of the way that we would do this type of uh, cross-species analysis compared to uh, what other what others in the industry might do if they were just looking at humans or say just looking at at mouse and and rat um, is that you know if you're if you're just looking at at a human study and you're trying to say look for what genes do we think um, are involved in heart failure you would look at say transcriptomic differences between healthy human hearts and failing human hearts. And then you would have a, mm -hmm. some type of gene list where you'd see the genes that have differential regulation between those two groups. Um, and at, at Fauna, we, um, we look at that type of data, and then we also look at hibernator data, and then we can compare them. And that's really where the magic happens because we can look at hibernators when their hearts are protected during the winter months. So we have an example of these are uh, genes that are involved in protection and then compare that to the summer months where they're not protected. And then we can integrate both of those two analyses. So we can say what's really different about a human heart when it is failing to a hibernator heart when it is protected. And um, we do very fancy types of network analyses, and then we layer on all of these data from uh, external sources. And the really exciting moments where we see these networks light up with the exact regulation patterns we are expecting that is relevant to our biology. Those are really fun. And I would say the, the other data source, Linda, that would be good to touch on is the Zoonomia data, right? I think the, mm -hmm. the comparative genomics data. So maybe give a little context on that. I think that really broadens the, the views point of what we work with. Yeah, Absolutely. So that's another data source that we work with. We have a collaboration with the Broad Institute um, that is one of the leaders of the Zoonomia project. Um, that has in the neighborhood of 250 mammals um, in, a, in a big alignment. And so we can do comparative genomics across all of these animals. And what we like to look for are um, comparing the genomes of animals that have a specific phenotype to others that don't. So for example, um, what is different in the genomes of hibernators compared to the mammals that cannot hibernate? And we typically do this with how fast or slow evolving genes are, right? So if a gene doesn't accumulate very many mutations in hibernators, um, then it's probably pretty important for hibernation because there's a lot of purifying selection on that versus say in other right. mammals that are not hibernators, like, like a human or a rat, 
it got a lot of mutations in it because it didn't matter as much for those animals. So that's another right. way of pinpointing the genes that are really important to hibernation. Um, and we know, of course, that some of those might relate to the overall hibernation trait, but many of them are going to be disease relevant because they've had to evolve these genes in a way to protect their hearts and their other organs from these extreme environments they're in during hibernation. So the, if I'm not mistaken, so did the Zoonomia Consortium did, you guys, there was a big white paper about comparative genomics yes. that got published in Nature, Nature in last 2020. Last year, yep. two, two years ago, um, yeah, a little bit. Yes, time. Time. time seems to blur under COVID. <laughs> like, <ago>. yeah. <laughs> How long have I been in this room? Wait, let me know. think. Um, but can, can you guys? I mean, because doing comparative genomics is not, you know, it's not new necessarily. But can you guys summarize sort of the arguments or the principles of that paper, you know, quickly? And then, you know, my next question is going to be like, do you feel that Fauna Bio is part of a larger movement in science and drug discovery that's sort of gaining momentum. So I'll 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 let you guys riff on that. Launch on that. Yeah. Linda, you're be yeah. you're the best one to do a perspective on that paper for sure. Sure. Um yeah, you know, I think this is really born out of the concept that in order to identify the most important genes in the human genome, we need to be looking at other animals and more precisely other mammals to see their pattern of evolution. Because if you see a gene that looks nearly identical across all other mammals, that means that it's really important. It means that it has been um, evolving for somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million years, not accumulating mutations, which really translates to if you got, you know, damaging mutations in that gene, you were a dead mammal. Those have been selected out. And that's really how you can tell these are the key genes that are important to, to your physiology, the difference between life and death. And you can't understand those things as well by just looking within humans and human populations. We're all too similar to each other. Um, but it's really when you get to these long time scales um, that the statistics work out where you can see, okay, this has been, this mutation has not happened in a hundred million years. We don't see it in anybody's genome. So that is obviously very important. And, and that's just this other way of looking at our own human genome that helps highlight the genes that are going to be important to diseases. And I think, um, you know, another side to this paper related to conservation and the fact that a lot of these animals with really exciting genomes, particularly the ones that are exciting to, to people like us are those that have sort of these really long uh, branch lengths where they're, they're kind of an ancient lineage. And that's really where the gold is, because that helps us um, even more understand um, how quickly or slowly some of these genes are evolving and it, it related to trying to conserve some of these species as well. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone Search for The Harry Glorickian Show and scroll down to the ratings and review section. Tap the stars to rate the show 
and then tap the link that says write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds, but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now, back to the show. I should say congratulations because you guys did raise a $9 million seed round last fall from a group of venture funds, some in life sciences, some yep. more general, right? Yep. What does that funding do? What is it? What does it unlock next for you? Um, I will answer that question. I do want to jump back to your um, other question that was kind of, is this part of a larger movement in comparative genomics, right? I think that's an important question. Yep. I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there. Um, we were invited to a symposium in August of 2019 um, called Perspective and Comparative Genomics that was held at NHGRI, right, in Bethesda. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a recognition, and actually some of our, our grant funding is also through NHGRI. And I think there's a recognition from the folks who sequence the human genome, right, that they don't have all those answers. And so it's an interesting time where we realize that there is this kind of other uh, data out there that can help us really understand that better. And it does feel a little bit like a rising tide. Um, and so that's, that's something that I think is, is important to recognize. Um, but in terms of the, the seed round, really that was meant to expand the platform and the pipeline that we built uh, with our initial funding back from Laura Deming and Age One um, and True Ventures um, who led around for us in, in early 2019. It's really saying like that initial, you know, three million or so dollars is really to say like, does this work or is this crazy, right? Like, can we, this <laughs> is just a crazy idea. Um, and that's when we really started to generate those first few animal studies that said, yes, actually we can find genes and compounds from this data that meaningfully affect not only human cells, but, um, you know, animal models of human disease. Um, and now we're really expanding into new disease areas. We're looking at areas like fibrosis. We're looking at areas like um, pulmonary disease. We've got some really interesting data coming out of animal models of pulmonary hypertension with a compound that we found on our platform. Um, we've got the collaboration with Nova Nordisk, which of the five genes that they tested in, in animals, we have one that has a significant obesity phenotype. So, I mean, 20% hit rate on a novel target discovery in vivo is not bad, right? So we've gotten to right. the point now where repeatedly over multiple disease areas, we've seen that, you know, between 20 and 30% of our either compounds or genes are hits, um, which shows us that this is not only kind of a, we got lucky in cardiac disease, but actually this is a process for enriching for important drug targets. And now it's a matter of really expanding the pipeline. We brought on a really experienced head of therapeutics discovery, Brian Berkey, who spent um, you know 20 years at NIBR running very early discovery programs and then seeing programs go into the clinic. He worked on drugs like Entresto um, and then worked on a couple of startups after that. So he's kind of gotten both big pharma and startup experience. Um, and his job at Fauna is to really look at the menu of things that we're presenting him from an early research and discovery phase and picking the winners and really figuring out how to take them forward. And also killing the programs that are less exciting to him 
for a number of you know technical or practical reasons. Um, so that's been really, really helpful to have someone come in truly from the outside and take a look at the science at Fauna and say, this is as good or better as anything that I've worked on before. I'm really excited to work on this. Um, and that's been kind of a nice external perspective um, on, on the science and the pipeline at Fauna. So that's really what the 9 million is for. It's really expanding a lot of the, the computational um, expertise and, and progress. And Linda can talk a little bit about that, but also just expanding into new disease areas as well. Understood. So, you know, on this show, like I talk a lot about, you know, technology, data, and, you know, how it's all affecting healthcare, which this all fits into. But one of the things we talk about a lot is how crappy, uh, terrible, I should use, you know, terrible, right, uh, electronic health records are and the lack of interoperability between them. And Ashley, you actually wrote a paper. It did. Yeah, veterinary medical records are just as bad. Actually, veterinary medical records are probably a little bit worse, <laughs> if it's possible. <laughs> and to be quite honest, I, I'm sorry, I just hadn't talked, you know, thought about Fifi or Rover and their medical records, AHR. Yeah. Um, you know, it is, is like, is the problem bigger even when it comes to functional genomics? I'm, I'm trying to think of like, obtaining and storing and analyzing omics of different species. I mean, who's working on this? Is that part of the Xenomia consortium, right? I'm just trying to think it through. Like, how do you get all this information and then look at it across all these different uh, species? And at some point, you know, look, looking at it against humans also. Yeah. I'll let Linda talk about the genomic side. I'll comment on sort of some of the kind of validation, some of the externally curated data that Linda talked about. I think this is actually becoming a really important data set. It was a little bit of a slow burn to figure out how to get it and to curate it. But there are a lot yeah. of studies now coming out and not just your traditional model organisms, but naked mole rats and long-lived rockfishes and, you know, primate studies and bats and all kinds of people looking at genomics and RNA-seq metabolomics and proteomics across these species that have interesting phenotypes. The problem is every one of those researchers really heads down on their own species of interest, right? Nobody's saying, oh, well, actually, we're seeing the same genetic signature in these bats that we're seeing in the naked mole rats that we're seeing in some of these long-lived fish, right? Um, but that data is not in a very friendly format. <laughs> so we were like, originally, we were like, okay, we're going to write some scripts. We're going to try to pull some of the stuff out of supplemental tables. It's going to be awesome. No, 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 no. Uh, we have uh, very highly trained curators who work on this data um, and bring it in. We have a very standard pipeline and a process and a way to normalize the data across different studies and standard ontologies and ways to clean up this data in a way that it can be integrated with the genomics coming out of the platform. Um, and that is a, a teen, tedious and painful and ongoing effort to bring in all this data. Now we have data from you know well over 330 individual studies, over 30 species. I think, I think Linda, you told me it was like more than 800,000 gene entries at this point that's curated and that's kind of growing month over month. Um, so now that's becoming part of our defensible moat is that we've taken the last two or three years, again, slow burn, pulling all this data together in a way that it can be reused. And now we can turn a paper around and put it on a platform in a week or two. Um, so we're kind of always scanning for these studies. Um, but yeah, it's 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 out there, but um, it's not always in a usable format without a lot of pain and effort. And so we've kind of put that pain and effort into getting that data in a place that we can use it. Yeah, sorry, Lynn. And then of course the comparative genomics is like a whole nother level of complexity. So, 
Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about how we do that um, within the comparative genomics com community and how we've done that um, for Zoonomia, because I referenced before that we like to do these sorts of studies to examine the genomes of hibernators and non-hibernators and figure out what's different. And you'd think it would be a trivial question, who is a hibernator amongst mammals? But it's actually not. Um, and so um, along with our collaborators, Allison Hindle and Cornelia Fanter, as part of the Zoonomia project, uh, Fauna tried to go through and categorize every, every genome that was in Zoonomia. So we're talking about around 250 mammals for, is it a hibernator or is it not? And you'd be surprised how often it was digging through literature from the 1970s and someone would say, this animal is not often seen during the winter. So we think it hibernates. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not always the most satisfying. And so it is a, an extremely tedious effort, but well worthwhile to go through and say, this animal I'm very sure hibernates, this one I'm very sure does not. And then there's this third category of animals that we're unsure about, we're gonna remove those. Um, and you know it's tedious, but you have to do that part right, because if you do the analysis with bad data, you're never gonna find the genes that you want. And Linda, I remember you telling me when you were going through this very painful process, that I think your threshold for being a torp torpidator, quote unquote, was that you could drop your metabolism like 50%, correct me if I'm wrong, and like humans could go down to like 40, like in certain instances, you're like, humans are almost there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there yeah, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to know when there's only one paper about it, but certainly there are some really deep meditative states in humans and low oxygen <laughs> environments where you know, we're getting kind of close to the area where we might say that that's a hibernator, but certainly not the duration that you get out of hibernators. Yeah. But it, it, it's it surprised me to see how close we can how get. Much, how much metabolic flexibility there really is um, when you start to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We got to go talk to the monks. Yep. Absolutely. Monks, right? You know, we, um, we have that in mind. Um, it sounds like an interesting travel experience. Yeah. So I'm going to jump back for a second because... You guys don't necessarily have, from what I have pieced together, the normal sort of like startup story, right? Um, first of all, you're an all-female founding team, right? Highly unusual, um, right? Uh, not something I see every day. Um, you guys started at an accelerator program in San Francisco called Age, Age One. One. Age One. And then um, you moved to QB3 in the East Bay Innovation Center. Yep. Um, and then I think they helped you with some paid interns. Oh, we got some for Berkeley. Yep, we did. Yeah. And then you went through a SBIR grant. A couple of them. From yep. the Small Business Administration. And then a Small Business Technology Transfer Grant from uh, the Human Genome Research Initiative at NIH, yep. right? Yep. I'm hope Hopefully my notes are all yep. correct. Yep. Talk a little bit about the on-ramp or, you know, infrastructure today for sort of seed stage startups like you? I mean, what were the most important resources? This is a, such an important conversation. I'm really glad you're asking this question. We had a call with a reporter from Business Insider yesterday who was talking to all three of us about this, um, you know, early founder 
um, eco you know, ecosystems in biotech and sort of East Coast versus West Coast ways of starting biotechnology companies, <laughs> right? That's, that is a whole, we should do a whole podcast on that, let me tell you. But um, I will say that there are a lot of resources for, let's call them founder-led bio, right, um, in the West Coast, which is kind of the buzzword these days. But people really supporting the scientists to originate the concepts and training them to be founders as opposed to assuming that you need to bring in an experienced CEO to run a company at this stage, right? So I think we were very fortunate to meet Laura Deming um, at Stanford, uh, who was one of the founding VCs in longevity before that was a buzzword, right? She was one of the first mm -hmm. longevity funds, um, literally longevity fund, um, and has really been a champion of founders um, starting companies and really training founders to start companies who are deep science uh, founders. So we started in age one. It was the first batch of age one. Um, we're still very close to that cohort of companies doing interesting things from machine learning and, and um, image analysis through pure therapeutics development. Um, and then, you know, Laura really helped us, you know, her, her, we asked her, you know, later, like, why did you end up investing in us? She's like, well, the science was amazing. This is a totally you know, field with so much promise. I just needed to teach you guys how to pitch. <laughs> like, like the science was there, right? So she helped teach us how to yeah. pitch and how to use less science words in our pitches, which we're still working on to some extent. Um, <laughs> but then it was this balanced approach of taking in some venture money to really support the growth of the company, but balanced with some of this non-dilutive funding for specific projects where it made sense. And some of that was, was some of that in the early stages validation, right? Having, having funding through groups like NHGRI, um, having an early partnership with a company like Novo Nordisk, um, uh, which provided also some non-dilutive funding for the company, really validated a lot of the science that we were doing because we were first-time founders, because we're a little bit outside of the normal profile. Like for me, I don't feel be weird being a female founder only because 80% of veterinarians are female. Like I'm used to being in a room with all women. You go to a bio conference, it's not the same thing, right? So for uh, you know, for us, we're just, we are who we are, right? But um it's helpful, I think, to get some of that external validation and then really be able to use that to, to start to build on programs and show progress. And then it becomes more about the data and the progress and what you can do with it. Um, so, you know, that's a lot of how we started the company. There's, I said, there's a lot of support in the West Coast for this kind of thing. There's great programs like Berkeley Foreman Fund, which talks in, which I worked, which I, I was in as well, just about logistics around starting companies. Um, there's a lot of good startup accelerators. I've got a really amazing, all of us now have amazing networks of founders um, who we can reach out to on different, I got four or five different Slack channels of founders that I can reach out to for all kinds of advice. And usually it is always good to have a, a, a company that's one or two stages ahead of you, like, you know, talking to um, folks who IPO'd or something last year is, is not as helpful as folks who recently raised a series B, right? And figuring out what those milestones look like and um, and particularly those that have taken mostly money from tech investors, um, like we have, although Life Force Capital, um, who led our last round, is also has funded some very good therapeutics companies, um, uh, Sonoma Therapeutics and, and Second Genome and other therapeutics companies as well. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's helpful to see how people balance uh, the needs of the companies at different stages and what you need. But So do you guys think that you could have started Fauna? 10 years ago? I mean, did the support systems exist no. for starting a company like this? Well, no, for two reasons, we couldn't have started Fauna uh, 10 years ago. One is the data just simply wasn't in a place this company was a tractable strategy. Um, everything was still too expensive and we had really shitty genomes for a few species at that point. Um, and B, I think there really wasn't the kind of 
groundswell of support for deeply scientific technical founders to start their own companies and train them to be the kind of leaders they need to be to run those companies, um, you know, for a longer term. So I think it's a confluence of those things. Um, and being in an environment like Stanford that really encourages um, people to to try startups, it's not a crazy idea. Like people don't look at you like your your head's backwards if if you start a startup company at Stanford. It's like, okay, cool. Like when are you launching? Um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, why don't you have a company yet? Whereas, you know, a lot, many, 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 many other places like that is seen as a very strange thing to do. Um, so I think the environment plays a huge role. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think between East Coast and West Coast, too, there's a. Like I said, that's a whole, we should have a whole another podcast on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I live here and I was, I was born and raised on the West and I yeah. remember there and I came here and I was like, ooh. This is we're no, you are not in Kansas anymore. Like this place is different. Um, yeah. So um, I mean, I'm hoping that the East Coast is actually embracing risk a little bit more and sort of stepping out on the edge. But it it's really slow. Uh, they don't call it New England for nothing. Um, so, uh, but you know, it was great having you both on the show. I this was great. I'm, I, we covered a lot of ground. I'm sure people's heads are spinning, thinking about, you know, uh, you know, different animal species and how that's going to play into this. And I, I mean, it really does sound like, I know we have to do the hard work, but there's a, a lot of computational effort that has to go on here to sort of make sense of this and bring it all together and align it so that you can yep. be looking at it properly and make the right decisions going forward. Millions of data points coming together to find drug targets for sure. Yeah. So thanks for being on the show. And, uh, you know, I wish you guys incredible luck. Thanks, Harry, so much. This is fun. Thanks for having us. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode, as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorikian.com and click on the tab podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting the Harry Glorikian show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.